The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Well, um, as we continue in our service together, uh, I'm going to read our scripture in a second, but I do want to make a mention that it's interesting as this week kind of unfolded uh, last week of school for a, a lot of kids, which they're very happy about, uh, <laughs> I know, and then uh, some of us are like, okay, why is there so much traffic, and then it just, it swells and then stops, it's kind of, it's been kind of a funny weekend that way. Uh, my son Jake, my older son who's 12, had a field trip, and it was, uh, they've been studying um, some of the Civil War, and particularly if, you, if you've just moved to Nashville, or maybe you've been here for a while and you don't know, Nashville holds a lot of history within it. Uh, everything from uh, the Civil War to the Civil Rights. Uh, there is a lot of rich history in this city. In fact, where I am standing right now, you may have seen a plaque out front. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King um, actually gave his Nashville speeches from this point where I'm standing uh, when he visited. He was supposed to go to Vanderbilt. Uh, they said, oh, I don't know, there's a lot of security issues. Scarrett was like, hey, we'll take you. He came over here and spoke. Uh, and you can actually find that speech. It's, it's an incredible speech online. Um, and you can read about the history. But I do think it's interesting because if you think about it from day to day, uh, we drive around, we do our practical life. And um, we're actually living in and around all this rich history that's happened. That's not only happened to our city, but it actually impacts us. And um, it's kind that, you know, as, as Jake's taking these field trips... You kind of wonder as even a kid and as even an adult, you're kind of like, I'm doing my pragmatic day-to-day life. Okay, where does the history connect to me? (laughs) And I really think of it in the same way as Christmas. I mean, if you think about it, Christmas is very similar. It's, It's a historical thing that we revisit every year. And there are these songs that sing out loud of the birth of a king of ancient days Years and years and years and years ago in a land not our own, and yet we go back to it every year. And if you really take it in and think about what we're doing, and you're walking through a a mall shopping, and and you hear one of the songs that we just sang, you're listening to what, what is literally an ancient prophecy being prophesied in the middle of a store. It's kind of crazy, and and yet we go about our business, and we get our things, and maybe even coming in here today, we feel the same way. We're singing the songs. We love it. It warms our heart, but we may be just in and around it, but do we actually know that what it really means, what we really believe as a church, what it really means to be a follower of Jesus is that we don't just act in around the history of this ancient prophecy. We actually believe this prophecy was fulfilled. It actually happened. It actually took place, and it means what it says it is. And I think if you read the Advent stories, uh, the ones that you've heard all along these weeks, and you'll you'll hear all of them read again at Christmas Eve, hopefully whether you're here at another service, uh, you'll hear all of those ancient readings as we've been looking at the prophet Isaiah's book in the Old Testament. But every one of those that connects to the New Testament and when the angels come and when this prophecy is given to these people, there are major reactions to it. There's not like a, oh, okay. 
Like think about Mary just herself. When she hears it, there's, there's a, a great fear. There's a, what, me? <laughs> the shepherds out in a field and, and essentially the court of heaven comes to them and there's these, sing, these songs being proclaimed and they're just, whoa. And, and the shepherds were the people of the lowest of low. Kings, as we just read today, kings come visit Jesus and literally are bowing to a child in a manger. It's, it's really odd. Kings that, that would have uh, all sorts of wisdom and uh, notoriety in their place and time come to a stall where animals live to bow to a child put in a trough. The reactions are heavy because the prophecy means something. It means something heavy. And I read this quote last week, and I want to read it again. Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, said this about Christmas. And I think it rings true to what we're about to venture into today. He said, no one is really neutral about whether Christmas is true. If the Son of God was really born in a manger, then we have lost the right to be in charge of our lives. Who can be objective about a claim like that? If it is true, it means you've lost control of your life. And you can't be in control if it really is a prophecy that is realized. So as we look at this passage today, we're going to finish our Advent series today. And even uh, on uh, New New Year's Day, on Christmas Eve, we're going to look at uh, this further and this fulfilled. But we're going to look at two things as I read from this passage from Isaiah. And it's about a prophet the prophet Isaiah, where God comes to him and commissions him to take the prophecy to Israel. And I want you to listen as I read, for, read it for these two things in particular. The holiness of God, that a prophet really projected God's holiness to the people, but he also projected really the hope to the people. So the prophet, the holiness and the hope, as I read this from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then the Lord, then I said to the Lord, how long, O Lord? 
And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. You know, if there's one thing that maybe you read here and maybe you heard in our song is, is holiness. <laughs> there's holiness. You know, what is holiness? I was reading this week and just, you know, scrolling through articles and read one in particular that talked about uh, uh, Will Farrell and Octavia Spencer, who was receiving an award, that were out on the, the road being, you know, she was receiving an award kind of in public, open in L.A. And all of a sudden, for, a heckler came and began to heckle them in the middle of this big event. I guess it was a star kind of walk kind of thing. And began to heckle them for three full minutes at least. Just shouting, yelling, yelling, yelling. And they kind of did their game back. Will Farrell did his kind of comedic way of, oh, he has some great lungs, you know, kind of that kind of thing. And finally, they were trying to shoo this person away. But the person kept yelling at them about, there's so much separation. You, you're just rich. You're wealthy. I mean, all this about how they're so high and mighty and how I don't know who this person was. It didn't show the picture. I didn't see. But obviously, they saw the gap. And I think when we talk about holiness sometimes, that, that holiness is kind of how we see things. There's, there's an element to it where we kind of see someone or something and we think, oh, there's just this separation. They're just so great. Or maybe you come into a building like this and you automatically just feel this, this, this transcendence, this otherness, this greatness, and you feel small. But what is that? What is holiness really? Because it talks about this at the very beginning. It's interesting. In verse 1 of this chapter, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne. Why? Why make that reference? Well, first, Isaiah is wanting us to know that there is a historical marker here. There was an actual king named Uzziah. In Second Chronicles, the later chapters in 26, it's an old, another Old Testament book that chronicles a number of kings. You can read about his story. But in about 740 B.C., you can read more about his life. He was considered a king who in many ways was uh, what was called a good king. That is that he tried to seek about God's work in the midst of the people of Israel. And he sought that out. But it says, why, why reference that he died and why this passage? Because if you read on there, it talks about his rise and fall. It talks about... That he first it did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but then there came a moment where he went, it became very proud, and deciding to enter the temple to meet with God and to to give a sacrifice in a way that he was not supposed to, he didn't want to distinguish himself from who God was, and so he actually entered the temple, even having a countless number of priests saying, "No, no, 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 you cannot do this." into the holiest of holies, a sanctum where God met with a specific priest every year only once. He wanted to go there. And it says that after doing so, he left and he broke out in leprosy. And this is the way that he died. 
But what, what does that tell us? It tells us that there's something different about God. That, that before we come to God in a way that we kind of think, oh, it's just a separation. He's just high and mighty and I'm just down here. There's actually more than that. It's not that God is just has everything and we don't. It's not just that he's just good and we're bad. It's that he is so separate and so holy and so perfect and wonderful that when these super beings, the seraphim, actually encounter him, they can do nothing but cry out holy, and not just once, holy, holy, three times. I know when uh, it's happened before, when, when I've been with my, my boys, they see uh, somebody really tall. <laughs> They're like, tall, that guy's tall, that guy is so tall. What are they getting at? They're saying, guy's tall. Not just tall, but like super tall. There's an emphasis. There's a reaction. There's, you can do nothing but say there is so much about him in character. And not just that he's unapproachable. And we need to actually ask that question. Because often at Advent, at Christmas, he's so easily approachable, we don't know who is the one really laying in the manger. Who is this that we're really talking about? Holy, holy, holy is that God is so unapproachable on our terms because of his perfection and comprehension of holiness that he's separate and pure, perfect in every way. Not just separate in one field or category, but in every single thing. And in a way that we would long for, in a way, honestly, that we really want to encounter, but we don't. We we want God to be perfect. We, we hope, I mean, we would hope God would be perfect. But his character is even beyond that. Uh, Tim Keller, again, wrote uh, a great book on prayer, if you ever want a, a book on prayer. And in that, he really captures a lot of the way that we try to approach God in his character. And many times we can approach God in his character thinking that he's just easily approachable without us maintaining that there really is an otherness between us and him. In fact, many other religions deal with this as well, as how do we actually encounter with God? When we come to him in prayer, is there an understanding that we're talking to someone other, or do we often pray to ourselves? Now, we may fall into these categories even not knowing. I don't know what your prayer life would be like or if, if how existent it is, but if and when you do pray, is it one where you pray oftentimes about one category, or maybe things about yourself. Or fall into a routine where you just pray for things to happen in your life. Or hope that we see changes, but do we know who we're really approaching when we approach God in prayer? And what he says in this book is, first, we need to understand when we come to God in prayer, we're praying to someone who is not in ourself. We're not praying to ourselves to feel calm about something or to have daily life fixed. But we're coming to such a perfect, holy, pure, other person. That this is why God, in Jesus, in, when he sets up the, the Sermon on the Mount and that prayer that he gives, he says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He says, our Father in heaven, that would be amazing to them. We're used to the Father part. He says, hallowed be thy name. That his name is so holy, so other, that his presence is that. 
And he tries to give us a description of this, even here, of sitting on the throne. Listen, he was high, sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and his train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two that covered their face, two that covered their feet, and with two flew. And one called the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. These seraphs, these highest of beings, their behavior here is described not just because this is what they typically do, but it's described that these beings that are so grand, so great, when they have encountered the one who is so far purer and holier and greater than them, this is the only reaction they can do. They cover themselves and they cry out in greatness. There's this dynamic of, of, of both covering from the one that is holy and also proclaiming the greatness of him. And listen, the, the train of his, his, his robe filling the temple is a picture of his holiness covering all of the earth, that there's not a corner. Can you imagine a robe extending into this room? Imagine a wedding happening here that you attend. And the train of the bride comes. And instead of it being one that kind of maybe covers a lot of the, the aisle here, that it just spreads, it comes in and it begins to fill up the entire room. And that it takes every corner. This is the picture of his holiness, that his train of his robe covers everything. There's not a corner that it doesn't touch. There's not a lost spot. There's not, his holiness doesn't, Leave anything it lack. And the temple foundations filled with smoke, it shook. And, and, and imagine the, 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 the shaking of that. I know that maybe you've been around as there's construction and there's some sort of a, a, a moment where the, the dynamite blast happens and maybe your office is next door and you just feel this, whoa. <laughs> but imagine that with, with no need for dynamite, no need for extra power outside. This is just the, the character of God himself the temple shakes with his presence. The only thing I can think of that's somewhat even remotely a taste of this is when the eclipse happened some years ago and the sun was blocked out. If you were here for that, the solar eclipse, where the sun was blocked and for those few seconds when it was dark, it was like creation around just went berserk. Every bug, every bird, every living thing made noises as if something was going on wrong. <laughs> and then when the sun began to come back out, everything quieted again. It was something greater than ourselves and many people around me, even watching the event, just in tears, just like we have never seen something so wild, so, so greater, so makes us feel so small and yet we want to be a part of it. That is God's holiness. It is the fact that it is so profound and yet there's a longing to be next to it. And this is where he finds himself. This is where Isaiah, in the midst of it, seeing all this in verse 5, then says, Woe is me! Because he thinks, how am I, a prophet, one who's called by God to speak all these things, even able to speak of the greatness that I'm encountering in the moment? And notice it happens in the temple, and this is where it is. Because it is in the temple where that bridge occurs. It is in the temple where Isaiah encounters the woe is me, that, that, that shame, that moment where you say, I really do see that I am unholy. 
I really do see how I, I really am not close to God. Where I encounter that. And you really experience that. Where, where do you find that? Where does the holy meet the unholy? For centuries, temples have been around uh, the world. And in many of them, you will find much gold, silver, things brought to the temple to appease that god or particular gods in that region. In the, Israel's history, they had a, te- a tabernacle. It was a temple that was in a tent. So that when Israel became a nation called by God, God said, you will be my people. They created this tent that God gave them instructions how to make, and it was portable. And for ages, God was in this tabernacle that they would carry with them and they would set up. And within it would have different rooms. And particularly the most center room would be the holiest of holies. Where the priest would enter in order to connect with God for the people as a mediator. And they would watch. And over the years, as the tabernacle, as Israel grew, grew as a nation, they built a temple a gorgeous, beautiful temple built by Solomon himself with all the riches and wealth of the nation. And still within it was the holiest of holies where God met with his people. The temple was seen as a tabernacle, as a temple where God the holy would meet with man the unholy. That, that is where It came to a head. And if we come to Christmas and we realize what's happening in this moment, that what we think about when when we sing songs like, Oh, Holy Night, and the language of holy is embedded in all of our Christmas hymns and songs, talking about what's happening when Jesus actually is there physically, tangibly, It's that the tabernacle has become accessible to us. That the holy has now come into the world of the unholy to bring us to his presence. And to bring us to himself through his own means. And it's so hard because our longings and our practical desires just kind of go throughout. We 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 do. As we even said at the beginning, it's interesting. This, we walk from place to place with such rich history that we're in and about. And it, how much does it really connect to our hearts? There's a, a quote by Ray Kroc. I don't know if you know who that is, who founded McDonald's. And I will read this quote, and at first you'll hear it, and you'll be like, huh. But it tells so much about how we live. He was asked by a reporter how he believed, what he believed in. He said, I believe in God, my family, and McDonald's. And then, he said, and then he added, he said, when I go to the office, I reverse the order. Now, many of us may say, ooh, but isn't that what happens? Practically in our hearts. How we live, we reverse the order. The difference in this prophecy and the difference in what is happening in this passage is that the holy comes to bring us. It is not about us trying to keep the order correct. If we understand what Christmas really is, it's a fulfillment of a prophecy that we can't fulfill on our own. That we cannot reach the holy. 
And that the hope that is here is that what God does in his woe to atone for his sins to reach that. Notice what he does. He says, woe is me, I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. This is a prophet. This is his job. This is his main practical life is to speak his gifting. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And what does God do? Does God say, that's right, you are unclean. And separates himself. But God takes a coal. And to to show him the hope isn't that you have woe and you have to try and make it back to me. But how I'm going to come to you is that the holiness brings hope and is proclaimed because then one of the seraphim flew, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar and he touched his mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. If we really believe That the prophecies that we're singing, the prophecies we're around are more than just us having warm hearts, but that our hearts are being redeemed and saved. We have to ask the question, what? Dan Allender, who wrote a great book about guilt and shame, he's a counselor, therapist, and a very well-known Christian. He said this, he said, the dread of being found out is sufficient to fuel radical denial workaholism, perfectionism, and a host of other ills. But the fear is greater than simply losing relationship. It is the terror that if our dark soul is discovered, we will never be enjoyed, nor desired, nor pursued by anyone. And what we know to be true, that Dr. Allender is saying there, is that every single one of us in this room has encountered that. Every one of us knows, not just with the relationships we have in our life, but if we're really honest, if we really encounter the prophecy that is being sung, that is a reality, and we brush up against it, we go, my eyes have seen the king. How in the world can I come in contact? How can Christmas be as not just warm, but as holy, as beautiful, as redemptive as it really is? Is because he brings payment. Because his sin is atoned for. And not only through a coal here, but a picture of how does God atone our hearts? How does he come to the depths of us? Not just to touch our lips, to work our practical magic, to change the order, but he doesn't just change the order, but for us to see the order through a whole new lens. He blows it up. So much so that as a prophet, you knew that if you signed up to be a prophet, your job was not good. If you read the rest of us as I did and listened, he said, they're not gonna listen there's going to be complete devastation. And when you think it's completely devastated, oh, there's going to be more. It's going to be wiped out in a way that you don't even see where there was hope of growth in the first place. What touches us in the places where pragmatically we try and get things in order to say, this is the best Christmas ever. But do we pin our hope on something that isn't fixed? 
I can tell you from multiple stories, but ones in particular, as I walk through a house being rebuilt in my life, literal house, how often I revisit that house as much as I can and how I've realized lately, lately, you would think as the months are closing on when we might move back into our house, I've actually felt more despair lately than not. And I'm realizing the reason why is, guys, I want that house to give me hope. I'm looking to a house being rebuilt to help encourage me. And every one of you knows that you have the same in your life. What is the thing? What is that one thing? Maybe a couple things that you look at and you go, well, at least I have this. But it cannot bridge the gap of what you really feel in your real despair, in your real shame, in your real guilt that you could try and put on it, but it can't atone for. It can't hold that. It's not made for that. Listen to what the priest actually had to endure. The priest himself, who was imperfect, had to do in order to represent the people on that day of atonement, when that one person was supposed to go in, when King Uzziah broke that, this is what the priest had to do. Listen. The high priest a week before would go into seclusion and was completely alone, so not to come in contact with anything unclean. Clean food was brought to him, And he'd wash it to prepare his heart. The night before the day of atonement, he didn't sleep, but prayed and read God's word all night to purify his soul. Then on the day, he would wash head to toe and clothe in pure linens. He went into the Holy of Holies, offered a sacrifice, then came out a a second and third time and would bathe to head to toe, clothe in new fresh linens, and then went in to atone for the sins. All this in public full view of everyone so they could see their representative do exactly and carefully what was needed for their purity. How in the world could someone do that over and over and keep us pure? It had to be in the one who would come It had to be in someone who could hold the holiness and also hold the hope together. See, hope in the Bible is not a wish fulfillment. It's not a, man, I really wish this Christmas, I wish you a Merry Christmas, is not a wish like, I I hope it works out. Hope in the Bible is is a fulfillment. It's a fixed point where everything is moving to. Just as he asks in this prophecy, After he hears that no one, in verse 10, no one's going to listen. Their hearts will not change, and you will keep preaching to them. And then listen to what Isaiah says. How long, O Lord? Is there nothing like time? The slow drip of time to erode our hope. And yet the Lord says to him, Until cities lie waste, without inhabitant, without houses, without people. The land is desolate, and the Lord removes the people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. And here's the hope. The holy seed is its stump. On the horizon for them 
And what he's talking about was a superpower called Assyria that was going to come and waylay the land. Not just take apart, remove the people, but a superpower that was going to demolish it. And then demolish it again. And the people, as they would, sit in there and say, where is the hope? Where is that? And for us, we may not be living in a time where we have that superpower coming in to oppress us necessarily politically or even militarily, but we have that. We may be asking the same questions of where is real hope in Christmas? Or is it another Christmas gone by and we just kind of are in and around it? The real hope sits right in front of us. The real hope is reminded in a taste and a sea of what God has done here. That the stump is not just something that's kind of an agrarian idea, but it's something to understand that God will let us feel the difficulty that we're in and yet, we're not ever without hope. There's a song we sing every Christmas. We'll sing it next week. Oh, Holy Night. And Oh, Holy Night is such a rich song because it really pairs what we're talking about, the holiness and the hope. It was actually written centuries ago as a poem by someone who is a, a French uh, winery guy. <laughs> really cool. And the poem was picked up later in the early 20th century a man who decided to play it, read a passage, and then he played it over the airwaves. He was actually a student of Thomas Edison. And after this, he played it, and it was considered the first song played on the airwaves, heard all across the globe. He played the violin, and he played this song, Oh, Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appears and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angel voices. O night divine. O night when Christ was born. O night, O holy night. O night divine. That is Christmas. That is what we celebrate. Not a prophecy that rings in the air. Not a song that's just played, but a message that has come to us no matter what. To let us know that the reality of this table, the taste that we have here, is for you to know that your soul feels its worth. That the body and blood of Jesus, the holiness of the atonement has been in the sacrifice of the son himself. The one who's born in the manger would grow to take that cross. That the prophecy doesn't stop in his birth, it continues on. So that we know that hope isn't fixed in something we revisit every year. It's fixed and has been fixed in the holiest of holies in a manger so that our soul could feel its worth to the depth and core of hope where no thing else, nothing else can reach or touch. Praise be to God that the holy comes to the unholy 
so that we can sing and celebrate the real prophecy of Christmas. Let's stand together.